Singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is arguably one of the most recognizable faces of Bitcoin and the man who, in my opinion, takes the geek out of Bitcoin and makes it easily understandable to the average person. And so, Andreas Antonopoulos, welcome to Singularity FM. Oh, thank you so much, Nicola. It's a pleasure to be on the show again for the second time after a long while. Fantastic. It's been a long five years, my friend. I have had endless requests to have you back on the show. I personally wanted to have you back, of course, because I enjoyed the first one tremendously, Mm -hmm. which we did uh, back in 2014 at the Bitcoin Expo. And let me start with this caveat, very important caveat. I, uh, because your time is very limited and very extremely valuable, I will not repeat any of the questions we covered in the first interview. So I'm not going to ask you what is Bitcoin. Okay. All right. So I suggest people, yeah, people go back and watch that interview because we have way too many things happening since 2014 and we need to discuss those now. So again, those who haven't seen the previous interview, go watch it and then come watch this one if you don't know anything about Bitcoin. So let me start uh, the only perhaps little redundant question, and I'm not even sure if I asked you before that is, if Andreas, if I ask you to introduce yourself in your own words, who is Andreas Antonopoulos? How would you introduce yourself to a person who has never heard of you or Bitcoin in one sentence? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I think in, in terms of what I do, um, I'm an author and educator. Uh, my goal is to help people understand this technology and to teach it to as many people as possible around the world in as many languages as possible, as many countries as possible. And it's the focus is on Bitcoin and open blockchains, um, because since we last talked, there's a lot more happening in the space and there's many interesting experiments happening. Uh, Bitcoin, of course, is still my primary uh, focus. Uh, but I've done some work in other spaces too. Fantastic. So what have you been doing for the last five years, given that Bitcoin's been dead or dying and dead again, I don't know, 200 yes. times for the past two years? At least, at least, yes. <laughs> so I um, so I get invited to the Bitcoin funeral uh, every three months. Um, it gets postponed. Um Unfortunately, <laughs> for the critics, uh, we keep postponing it. It's very annoying for them. Um, I've written four books since we spoke. So I, I, at that point when we spoke, I hadn't published Mastering Bitcoin yet, which was my first book, um, which is about how the technology works. I then wrote two books, which are about why Bitcoin and open blockchains matter, called The Internet of Money, Volume 1 and Volume 2, which are based on my videos, talks, my seminars, um, more about the philosophy, the economics, the politics, the social impact of this technology, not about the technology itself. Um, And I recently published, uh, like three months ago, Mastering Ethereum, which was my second O'Reilly technical book. Again, this is more college-level textbook for computer scientists, uh, software engineers, developers. I see. And, And out of your books, 
sort of which one would you recommend that people start with presuming that they're not like computer scientists or technically inclined but like the average folk who just have an interest in bitcoin in general which one should they start with well they can start with the internet of money uh, volume one or volume two they're not in any particular sequence uh, i have my favorites um but they're just collections of talks and they're all just standalone talks you can read three pages at a time four pages um you know, I, I, I joke and I say, to me, this is the perfect bathroom book. Um, you can read it in, in, you know, five to seven minutes, read one chapter, put it down, open it at another point at another time and continue reading another five to seven pages. Perfect. Um, so there's that. But of course, you know, I have more than 400 videos published on my YouTube channel for free. And the books are based on the talks that you can watch in video. So it depends how you like to... Uh, you know, some people prefer to read, some people prefer to watch videos. My videos also have subtitles in like 30 languages. Um, and some people like to listen to audio. So we're trying to deliver everything in the way you want to hear it. Fantastic. So let's jump right in here. Yes. It's been a long five years, up mm -hmm. and down, very exciting, lots of drama, tragedy, comedy, you know, everything like hijackings, kidnappings, ransoms. Uh, hackings, you name it, everything collapses, uh, uh, tremendous rises, everything's been going on. So you are the person who has been following this. And, and by the way, Bitcoin recently turned 10, 10 years old. Yes. Uh, so you've been following this, this phenomenon for so long. Can you perhaps tell us from your sort of big picture point of view, what are the major issues of Bitcoin today? So Bitcoin is growing and evolving constantly, and it's growing in multiple different directions. It's spawned a whole industry of um, competing, but also co comparable uh, systems. And it's forging the way to become the world's uh, most robust, independent, digital, secure currency and payments network that is open to everyone across borders, that is neutral to all participants that cannot be censored or stopped or turned off it allows people to both transmit money, make payments, but also store value uh, across a longer term, which, you know, for the average American is probably not that interesting because the US dollar does it more easily. But in many countries where their currencies have uh, inflation problems, et cetera, it can be a very powerful store of value or safety net uh, exit from a situation. And at the same time, it's evolving as a programmable form of money, which allows us to build various applications and do things you can't do in traditional banking because it's an open system. Swirling around all of this is this enormous amount of drama because when Bitcoin is successful, it suddenly acquires a lot of friends, you know, people who are like, oh yeah, I've been in this forever. I've never seen you before, but okay. And, <laughs> you know, suddenly they're... There's all opportunists around, similar to what happened during the dot-com bubble where everybody was a dot-com entrepreneur and during the iPhone bubble when everybody was an iPhone app developer. It, it attracts people who see an opportunity to make a quick buck. Uh, then the price usually goes down a bit and then all of those people disappear and the people who are left were probably interested in more than just making a quick buck. And through all of this, 
you know, I've tried very hard to stay focused, focused on the technology, focused on the fundamental principles, not get distracted by all of the drama, all of the craziness, and, and really try to be a steady, consistent, non-dramatic voice in the space that, you know, we, we speak about the principles and hold those strongly, privacy, independence, empowerment, neutrality, borderless operation, open access. Those principles are, I'm going to speak strongly about every time because I care about them. But then I'm much more flexible about a lot of the other things. And, you know, I'm, I like to be the neutral voice and try to remain focused on the, on the things that matter. And all of this noise is swirling around. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to ignore. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who want to tr drag everyone into the drama. But, you know, what's really interesting is that despite all of this, Bitcoin has continued to, to work and do what it's supposed to do. Most people don't appreciate what that means. That means that a currency that is actively offending the entire financial industry <laughs> and at least 100 governments on Earth has been producing a new block on average every 10 minutes like a heartbeat for 10 years uninterrupted without delays, without shutdowns, without down for maintenance, without closing hours, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, despite everyone trying to attack it on multiple levels, political, legal, technological, still there. Keep calling for its funeral, still there, surviving. And that's a real testament to the robustness of this technology. Now, uh, we'll come back to some of the, uh, the, the claims about ro robustness of the technologies or uh, perhaps some of the sort of bugs, etc. But mm -hmm. before we get there, uh, I want to sort of share with you a, a similar sort of observation that I have. You know, I'm in the sort of artificial intelligence, singularity, and mm -hmm. transhumanist niche. And nowadays, there's two magic words that, first of all, everyone's a futurist today. Yes. Just like everyone's a blockchain expert. Of course. And, and secondly, every startup now has artificial intelligence yes, and if... or blockchain technology yes or as i like to call them if then else and databases <laughs> so artificial intelligence 90 percent of the time it's it's conditional programming it's if statements and heuristics it's not really artificial intelligence artificial intelligence is what we use to to call the thing that the computers can't do yet and once they can we just call that software right? <laughs> and blockchain is basically databases controlled by central actors that want to get better funding than databases controlled by central actors. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. And we have to be able to, first of all, separate the noise from the truth. And I think that's really important. And I see that as my duty to educate people, not to tell them what is truth, because th that is appeal to authority, but to give them the tools and the criteria to ask the right questions and determine for themselves which things have substance and which do not. So how do you find out if a blockchain is really a worthwhile project? Now I have a series of five questions you can ask. Is it open? Is it borderless? Is it neutral? Is it censorship resistant? And is it decentralized? And if you say no to one of those, then it's really just a centralized database. I'm sure you have similar things in artificial intelligence and futurism. You know, you have to equip people with the tools they need to make their own minds 
about these technologies. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, so so speaking of that, actually, uh, let us perhaps here start by differentiating another fad or maybe artificial distinction, if you will, mm -hmm. because you see nowadays we have the lingo that you know, oh, Bitcoin is not so interesting, etc. But you see the blockchain now that's the real thing you know so yeah mm -hmm. bitcoin would probably die but the blockchain that's gonna stay around that's the real innovation it's the blockchain what do you want to say to people about that and usually by the way that comes from sort of banking elites uh mm -hmm. and and those kind of types it, it seems to me well there there's two possibilities one is a lot of people are simply repeating what they hear at publications and conferences right and a lot of that is published from a perspective of trying to maintain the status quo and diminish the disruptive innovation. Um, people who are seeped in the tradition of an industry, whether that's newspapers trying to fight the internet or TV stations trying to fight Netflix, um, the, the bottom line is that they see the world entirely from the perspective of their tradition and cannot imagine a world where things would be different. Um, it also comes a lot from the privilege of living in a developed nation and having a banking system that works, which only really applies to about 15% of the human population. Um, you know, there aren't that many calls for that blockchain, not Bitcoin argument in developing nations because they understand that there, there are more important problems to solve. So fundamentally, it's wrong. And fundamentally, it's wrong is because it's attributing to blockchain characteristics that don't necessarily exist. So a lot of you'll ask people, well, why do you think blockchain is important? What does it do? And it's like because it allows people to uh, have a, a network of trust. Well, actually, it's decentralization that allows you to have a network of trust. Otherwise, you're trusting in a third party. Well, yeah, but it allows you to record data with immutability. Oh, well, that's actually proof of work that allows you to have immutability. Without it, any of the participants in a federated system can change the past, so it's not really immutable. Uh, and it's not open, and it's not borderless, and it's not censorship resistant, and it's not neutral, and it's not immutable, and it's none of those things. So a lot of what people call blockchain is really an attempt to take uh, as little disruption as possible into their business and continue business as usual, which you, which is why you hear it from the traditional finance industry. And they don't understand why anyone would need a system of finance that's independent of corporations and governments. And the reason is because the one they have serves them, but it only serves them. It doesn't serve the majority of the world's population who are cut off from having access to these systems. So when Warren Buffett says banking works for me, it was like, of course it does, Warren. You know, look at your station in life. Um, now let's talk to someone from South America. See how banking and currency is working for them. Not so well? Great. So this whole um, argument, first of all, I think anyone who's looked into the technology and understood it from a sophisticated perspective understands two or three fundamental ideas. One, the unique thing about Bitcoin's blockchain, the thing that makes it interesting, novel, and different is the fact that no one controls it as decentralized so that um, no one has power to change the rules, which is what makes you able to trust that the rules are going to remain consistent and neutral to the participants. But in order to do that, it has to use this consensus algorithm, it's called, which has this game theory built in, a system of incentives and punishments. 
And these incentives are delivered in the form of rewards that are paid in a currency. So the currency, the proof of work, the consensus algorithm, all of these things are inextricably tied together to produce the decentralization, the open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant nature. You take away um, the consensus algorithm, or you take away the uh, built-in currency that's used for the game theory, and then the security model changes dramatically, and it becomes much more centralized. Once it's centralized, the central party that has control over the blockchain now has a legal responsibility to maintain borders, so it's no longer borderless, because there are laws in place that do not allow um, any organization really to, to um, do uh, transfers of currency across borders uh, without a banking license. So, and, and if you do have a banking license, then you have to start checking who is sending and who is receiving the money so it's no longer neutral. And when presented with a law enforcement request, you must be able to stop or reverse a transaction so it's no longer censorship resistant. And in order to do all of that, you have to carefully control who has access to it so it's no longer open. So what have you done? Well, you've rebuilt the existing financial system. We already have that. We already have a system that is available to selected, carefully vetted participants who provide their identity information so that the central provider can decide if they should be allowed to send or receive money. And if not, or somebody doesn't like it, they can be shut down. And most of the time, very hard borders, very difficult to move money across countries. And we already have that. It's not really disruptive to change the, the way the database works in a system like that. What's disruptive is to break out of the chains of those systems and make something that is truly open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant, decentralized, immutable, et cetera. And in order to do that, no one can be in control because the first person who's in control, they get sued, punished, jailed, tortured, killed, right? That's how it works. That's how governments maintain control. So um, you can only do that if no one's in charge. Well, uh, let's. I have a number of uh, issues here I want to bring to our attention, things that mm -hmm. have emerged in the last five years. I also have a number of audience questions, so let's see how many of them we can tackle here. Yeah. So, uh, sticking at the sort of big picture level still for, for another minute or two, perhaps, is let me see if this analogy works in your mind or not. Recently, there was a big article published, I think, in the New York Times or in the New York Times magazine or something like that called An Apology for the Internet. Yes. It, it was written by Tim Berners-Lee and a number of other people whose work is basically yes. providing the cornerstones either for the Internet or for the World Wide Web. Yes. Where they basically say that something has gone terribly wrong with the Internet. Yes to the very core of it, you know, some people have called it surveillance capitalism or what have you. And if we don't change it, if we don't start uh, making changes very soon and fundamental radical changes, that thing that was promised to us as liberation, freedom, open discourse, open discussion, individuality, etc., etc. It becomes a dystopia. Becomes exactly instead. the opposite, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of similar or parallel argument and or danger that has emerged in the last five years that may have led you to believe that perhaps Bitcoin 
might be exhibiting some of the early signs of going towards that direction or is that completely false analogy? There are a lot of very strong connections. In fact, my very first talk I did at a conference in 2013 uh, in San Jose, my very first public Bitcoin talk was called Bitcoin Neutrality, and it was about maintaining the rules of neutrality so as not to follow the path of the internet. What Tim Berners-Lee and many others realized was that they had built insufficient privacy into the base layer of the internet. And it's ironic, this comes right after the question of, is it really blockchain, but not Bitcoin? We're interested in blockchain, but not Bitcoin. Well, guess what? That is exactly the same as, oh yeah, yeah, we're very, very excited about Facebook, but not the open web. Facebook, not internet. Facebook is the internet, isn't it? No, it's not. It's a centralized, controlled, censored uh, infrastructure that doesn't give you any of the freedoms. It kind of looks like the internet if you don't understand the principles. That blockchain versus Bitcoin and Facebook versus internet is exactly the same argument. And it's terrible for exactly the same reasons. This gives us a very important warning. We need stronger privacy in Bitcoin. Bitcoin currently does not have sufficient privacy in the base layer. Fortunately, we're doing some very important work with the second layer of Bitcoin, which is called the Lightning Network. And it's an inter-currency or inter-blockchain uh, protocol based on smart contracts. And it has very strong privacy. In fact, it uses a routing algorithm that is very similar to Tor, the onion uh, routed network, um, if you know what that is. And so it provides much stronger privacy and anonymity, and not all of the transactions broadcast to all of the participants. But we do need stronger privacy in the base layer. And I've been talking about that for four years nonstop. And um, I, I think we're getting closer. But it's one of the areas where if we don't take enough action to build strong privacy, despite the fact that when we try to build strong privacy into Bitcoin, we're going to get a massive amount of pushback from regulators, from regulated exchanges, from governments, from all of the people who are like, no, 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 for your own safety, you have to tell us about every transaction, otherwise the terrorists will win. That argument is going to be resisted very strongly. So we need to build strong privacy into these technologies. Um, because anybody who has access to everybody's financial information is the terrorist in the long run. They become the totalitarian governments that destroy freedom. So um, that's a very strong point, a strong parallel. We need much better privacy. Is there any others or would you stop at privacy? Well, there, there, is, there is a very important, uh, there's a lot of people who are trying to co-opt and muddy the waters. So they're trying to uh, take away the decentralized nature and centralize it, which is another fundamental problem. Again, we have to resist the Facebooking tendencies um, that occur in cryptocurrencies. A lot of people are trying to build centralized alternative versions where they say, look, this is better than Bitcoin. It's faster. It's more scalable, right? But what they're not telling you is, but it's less free. And it's heading down a path where in the future, it's not going to be open, borderless, neutral, censorship resistant, and decentralized anymore. They're building the Facebooks of cryptocurrency. And we don't need that. We already have that. You know, we have JP Morgan Chase. We don't need another one <laughs> with actually, Zuckerberg at the helm, you know? Yeah, yeah. I actually interviewed Richard Stallman for my, for my show some time ago, and his message was, 
freedom is worth the inconvenience. <laughs> absolutely. I, it's I a, absolutely it, agree with. Yeah. It's a design trade-off and it's a conscious design trade-off. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let me ask you about a couple of, uh, let's say three or four, I don't know how many we're going to be able to sneak in specific issues. So the, yes. they're kind of arbitrarily in chronological orders, things that maybe have stood out for me in, in the last sure. five years. The first one started with an article published uh, back in 2016 by Mike Hearn. Uh, mm -hmm. where he, uh, it's, it's called the resolution of the Bitcoin experiment. And basically towards the end, he concludes it's a failed experiment. And he basically, I think he stopped his involvement, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes. and he lists a number of problems, a number of issues, entrenchment of miners was just one of them. And among many others, lack of consensus for a future direction, lack of vision, people, problems, et cetera. That was like one of sort of like the first issues, major issues that popped in. And from then, probably bigger and bigger issues started coming up. What do you think about this this sort of first, uh, I don't want to point it point of crisis, but argument that emerged that took major popular coverage? I think there's a tendency to look at a decentralized project like Bitcoin and get frustrated with the pace of development and get frustrated with the very conservative and slow um, development. And some people see that as a disadvantage. Some people see that as a strength. From my perspective, if you can make changes rapidly and take risks in the protocol, um, you run the risk of creating both security failures as well as having people within the community be able to hijack the direction of the conversation and steer Bitcoin in a way they want. Um, what's happened over the last four years, especially, has been a series of attempts by certain groups that didn't have broad consensus to steer either the development, the conversation, the mining, um, the strategic roadmap, the scaling debate, or any of these other decisions in a particular direction. And every single one of those attempts has failed. Um, and every group that has tried to exert power that they think they have over the system has proven to not have sufficient power. And, you know, Mike Hearn came at this from the perspective of a developer. He didn't like the direction it was going for. And with a group of other developers, they tried to create alternative approaches and change the direction of the protocol. They failed. Uh, then uh, he talked about how the miners were too entrenched and strong, but that was the next group to try to seize control. Um, and the miners tried to essentially pull a coup and change the direction of protocol development without the developers. Um, and they failed. Um, they caused a split, a fork, and they ended up with a minority um, blockchain that um, has never really had much progress and wasn't followed despite their prediction of an imminent flip in, in the fortunes of the two systems was not followed by any of the economic interests, the majority of the exchanges, the majority of the users, or even the majority of the miners. That was the next group to, to attempt a coup. Various political groups that have tried to create foundations and steering groups and committees, they've all failed. Well, if you look at that from the outside, you're like, it seems like governance isn't working in Bitcoin. It seems like we have an untenable problem of governance. 
And then 10 minutes later, Bitcoin spits out a new block and apparently it's governing itself perfectly well. <laughs> um, because it, it, the, the, the trick here to realize is that there are two distinct aspects of governance. There's governance from the human perspective, the political governments of developers, miners, participants, exchanges, users, wallets, developers, et cetera, et cetera. And they're finding that their power is limited. And then there's the algorithmic governance, certain things that are set in the algorithm. There will only be less than 21 million coins. Blocks will be issued every 10 minutes. They will be of limited size. The transaction structure will be like this, et cetera, et cetera. These things haven't changed. Or if they have changed, they've only changed with very, very um, high percentage of agreement from all of the participants. It requires that. One of the things that people don't appreciate about Bitcoin and other open blockchains is that they offer a new model of governance, which is algorithmic governance, where if you don't agree with the majority of everybody else, you can fork and create an alternative vision. But if nobody follows you, you're going to fall flat on your face. And it's very expensive to go against the system. That form of algorithmic governance is an alternative to committees and democratically elected representatives and the Federal Reserve and the board of directors of JP Morgan Chase and shareholder votes and national elections. It is a model of governance that says, instead of trusting that people will follow a process, I trust that software will follow an algorithm and it will follow it so closely that it's very difficult, even for people who appear powerful, to steer it in a different direction. Now, that wasn't good for Mike, Mike Hearn. And so he didn't like that governance model. And he left to work on more centralized systems, uh, became a member of R3. They built centralized blockchains. Those are human governance models. Uh, humans are definitely in charge there. And as a result, they cannot be legally open, borderless, neutral, censorship resistant for any of the other interesting things that Bitcoin does. Um, and Bitcoin's still here. Uh, I don't know what Mike's doing these days. Well, Andreas, I am a kind of a, an ignorant observer of the events surrounding mm. Bitcoin for the, for the five past years. And just to demonstrate how idiotically ignorant I am, I would share that, you know, I was one of the first people who bought Ethereum yes. uh, back in the day when it launched. And, and I think uh, for whatever reasons like that I don't want to go into, I sold it at like five cents or something like that. and then whatever I sold at that time is today prob probably worth about between one and two million dollars. Mm -hmm. So clearly I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, we've all done that, right? I mean, that's, you can't have regrets over that because um, the, the point is that you got to experience the technology and learn something. If this was simply an investment or trading mentality, you can make that argument for everything out there that you didn't invest in. You didn't buy Apple in the 1970s or 80s. Um, you know, the first co-founder of Apple sold his stake of Apple shares, 10% stake for $800 in 1978 or right. something like that. My, my, uh, my example is exactly kind of that. <laughs> so, yes. Well, but, not 10%, but like I got for a few for a couple thousand dollars. Yes, exactly. So uh, the, the bottom line is uh, none of that matters. Uh, in fact, it is through using these systems that we explore their potential and we realize that potential by demonstrating and interacting with other people and engaging in the technology. So 
it's it's much better than being a an, a bystander who doesn't even try to use the technology. Um, and it's also better than simply being a, a trader or investor, in my opinion. Not that they're not important; they're very important. But um, if all you do is trade these coins, um, buy one, sell the other, etc., you're not actually using the technology. Um, so it's okay. Don't don't worry about these regrets. It doesn't matter. Um, making decisions about when to buy and sell is very different than understanding this technology and its future impact on society because the price is not representative of any uh, fundamentals of the technology. Uh, we watch these huge swings where Bitcoin goes through the roof and gets very, very uh, pricey. And everybody's like, what changed? Well, I can tell you, nothing changed. People just got <laughs> overly excited and started talking with their friends and, and hearing about it. And then it starts crashing and people are like, what changed? Nothing changed this time either. It's the price is reflecting the price and nothing much else. Uh, but speaking about price and power, which was the topic yeah. that I was preambling with my ignorance, yes. I want to bring to you three issues that push back against your claim, three specific sure. historical examples. So the first one starts actually with a science or supposedly a scientific paper in the Journal of Monetary Economics, volume 95, May 2018, pages 86 to 96, called Price Manipulation in the Bitcoin Ecosystem, mm -hmm. where they lie out a few, the highlights of the paper are basically, one, yes. suspicious trades on a Bitcoin currency exchange are linked to rises in the exchange rate. Two, yes. A single actor likely drove the US dollar versus Bitcoin exchange rate from $150 to $1,000 in two months. Three, yes. trading volume on all exchanges increased greatly on days with suspicious activity. Basically, the claim is that around, I think, um, when was it that Bitcoin jumped suddenly to $1,000? This is 2013, November of 2013. Right. So yes. they're saying that that was entirely 100% manipulated yes. yes absolutely so here's what's changed since then so you've got to realize that okay first of all um exchanges and the trading of bitcoin for us dollars or any other national currency has nothing to do with the bitcoin technology this is really important to understand you're not even using bitcoin technology when you're buying and selling bitcoin on an exchange for national currency what you're experiencing there is the stock market-like or bank-like interface between national currencies and cryptocurrencies. But it, it's basically running on a database. It has nothing to do with blockchain or any blockchain. Um, and it's basically a trading engine. Now, this is the worst possible side of banking combined with the worst possible side of cryptocurrencies because you've got a banking institution effectively or stock exchange that is not regulated by anyone. Um, and in the case of 2013, that was an organization called MT Gox, which was run by a single guy in Japan. And at the time we didn't have any alternatives. So at the time there were no good exchanges. There was only one and it was terrible and it was heavily manipulated. So yeah, they're absolutely right. I mean, the price, is really uh, often reflected of these amateurish run, sometimes criminally run um, trading shops where they're just basically manipulating 
uh, naive investors. Now, a lot has changed since then. Today, there are more than six, 700 exchanges around the world, not one. Um, many of those, uh, or at least some of the biggest ones, are well-regulated, well-operated in uh, stable jurisdictions. Because if what you're running is a bank that is not controlled by the decentralized rules of a blockchain and the trust that you can put in the rules of the blockchain, then you need the banking regulatory infrastructure that has existed for hundreds of years. If you are giving your money to a third party, which is what you do on a custodial exchange, then someone needs to do oversight and regulation of that third party. Otherwise, you will get manipulated. That's always been true. If you store your crypto on the blockchain and you control the keys, then you have the protection of the algorithm. Uh, but that's not what trading is about. Exchange trading has nothing to do with, with that. So yes, price is heavily manipulated. Less so now, five years later, because there's a lot more liquidity and a lot more exchanges, many of which are well-regulated. But even today, there was a paper recently that found that 95% of the volume produced or um, reported by many of the exchanges that are based in uh, China, Southeast Asia, South America, that are not in regulated uh, markets, are faked. Uh, so fake volume. And it's bad in Bitcoin. It's worse in every other cryptocurrency. Um, yeah, that's why I don't believe the price. <laughs> yeah, and, and not only that, but I, I don't remember if it was the same paper you're quoting, but I read in another paper that what many, uh, if not most, uh, uh, exchanges do is they get ahead of your trade in order to profit. You know what I'm front saying? Running, like the front running, as it's called. The flash traders. It's, right. it's called front running. Yes. Where basically you know that there's a trade coming in that will move the price enough and you buy at the lower price and sell at the higher price. So yes, exchanges do that too. It's illegal. Uh, they can only do that when they're not sufficiently regulated. Anytime someone else controls your money, they need to be regulated. The only reason blockchains can step out of that model is because no one controls your money. It's controlled by algorithm. That's not how exchanges work. We need to make this clear separation between the bank-like system that exchanges operate and the actual blockchain. If I go out and I trade Bitcoin uh, for fiat with someone at a Starbucks and we do our own trades and we keep the money on the blockchain and we don't give control to anyone else, none of these problems happen, right? The security model is the blockchain security model. So let me get this straight though the implications of what you're saying. Are you saying we shouldn't be using exchanges or are you saying that we need actually, are you saying that actually you're in support of some regulation as far as exchanges are concerned? Uh, any organization that has custodial control, which means they are holding the keys to your money, must be regulated. This is consistent to everything I've said. In my testimony in 2014 at the Canadian Senate, I specifically told them these need to be regulated by banks because they have all of the risks of the banks. They're not blockchain technology. They are bank technology and they have all of the risks, bigger risks than the bank because you can't easily digitally rob a bank and run away with all of their currency, right? Um, but you can with, with a cryptocurrency, which is why people keep hacking and stealing money from exchanges. Again, this has nothing to do with blocks. So yes, I call on regulation for uh, custodial institutions. For users, you have to be very careful and very aware of what exactly you're getting. I use exchanges. 
I don't use them to store my cryptocurrency. That is way too dangerous. I use them to exchange. And when I do so, what I do is I transfer the cryptocurrency. I trade it for fiat currency. I withdraw the fiat currency. In total, in and out in 15 minutes, that's the maximum exposure I have. And when I leave, my balance on the exchange is 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 15 minutes later. And during those 15 minutes, I'm going, please don't get hacked now. Please wait another 15 minutes. Get hacked later. Please don't go bankrupt now. Please don't have your bank account shut down now because those risks all exist. What I'm doing is I'm choosing to take some of those risks for a very short period of time with full knowledge of the service I'm getting in return, which is quick and easy high liquidity conversion into fiat. But here's the better way. First of all, you only need that if you're treating this not as a currency, but as an investment, and you're in and out all the time because you're trading it. I use it in my business. I get paid in crypto. I pay my employees in crypto. I pay my suppliers in crypto. I pay my partners in crypto. I run my business on crypto. Guess what? I'm not doing much exchanging. I'm staying in the crypto economy. Are like, you 100% crypto now or 90% or? No, probably only about 50% crypto. 50%. Okay. Um, I still have US dollar bills that I have to pay and I still get paid by US dollar from people who can't handle the crypto side. I give them a good discount to pay me in crypto. Some can't even handle that. But think about it this way. If you're a customer, if you're a person who lives in the US and you're operating in the US dollar, how often do you exchange it for other currencies? You don't. You stay in the economy, right? And so you don't have exchange risk, exchange rate fluctuation risk or custodial risk or uh, the bankruptcy of your bank risk and all of these things. So as long as you stay in the economy, then you don't have these risks. If you live with one foot in fiat and one foot in crypto and you're constantly trading between the two, you're not using this as a currency. You're treating it as an investment and really as a get rich quick scheme. And then you, you have very high risks. Mm -hmm. Let me let me ask you and give you the third example and then we can move yes. on from there. And I'm afraid that time is running out. My goodness. So the third example that 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 was arguably a very controversial brought a lot of sort of in so let's say the other one were kind of out criticisms from outside of the community more or less. But especially to the Ethereum community, very controversial was the execution of the hard fork. And for the DAO, you mean? Or yes. 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 Well, there, now there have been hard forks in Ethereum, hard forks in Bitcoin. Um, right. in, in fact, if you look at it historically, I would make a strong argument that the DAO, which led to the hard fork in Ethereum, was actually the precipitating cause for the hard fork to Bitcoin Cash because it gave people a roadmap. They saw what happened in Ethereum and they're like, oh, we could probably pull this off in Bitcoin too, and then got inspired. Uh, <laughs> But my concern, my concern, the concern I want to bring about that is the following. I watched a documentary on this whole episode and, you know, there was the soft fork, the hard fork, all kinds of issues. And in the end of the day, I don't know if that's the truth or not, but the documentary I watched portrayed a conversation uh, by Vitalik with whom, by the way, I did probably the first uh, interview ever uh, mm -hmm. way before Ethereum got launched in mm -hmm. person. So people should go check that out. But basically, Vitalik made a decision to go with the hard fork. And the decision was based on the idea that he got under a lot of pressure from his investors and that his obligation was to protect his investors. Yeah. 
I, I think that's mostly a conspiracy theory, honestly. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, um, I don't think Vitalik had the power to make that decision. He made that decision and um, for his own decision, he expressed his opinion. He could not make everybody who's mining and everybody who's running an exchange and everybody who's running a wallet and everybody who's writing smart contracts change the software they were using. They would only change the software they were using if they agreed with that decision, right? So he can't reach into your computer and force you to run one fork or the other or switch the software. He can express an opinion. And we've seen, especially since then, many times when Vitalik has expressed opinions and it hasn't gone his way. Mm -hmm. I think people overestimate how much power he had. Now, in this particular case, if you say, let's do this, and everybody kind of already wanted to do this, it appears like everybody's agreeing or at least um, doing what you said, but they would have done it anyway. Do you see what I mean? So it's, um, it's an ex post facto rationalization. Let me use the correct term. Right. The claim was that Vitalik plus his investors, who are some of the biggest sort of owners or hoarders, I don't, want, I don't know what to call them, of, of eaters, had that sort of sufficiently uh, large mass to kind of give that momentum? I, I, think that's, I think that's incorrect for a number of reasons. Uh, because, uh, first of all, there were plenty of uh, participants in the mining and the network who had to make that decision independently. Uh, but also because I don't think this was a very good outcome for investors. Honestly, I think letting the DAO sink uh, would have been a better outcome for the price of Ethereum. But that's not the way it went. Um, here's another way to look at this, which I think is more important. Um, you know the theory of the multiverse? Yeah. Where course. at a quantum level, um, every choice, yeah. uh, every binary choice, true, false, zero, one, yes, no, leads to an effective split into two parallel courses of the universe where in one, the decision was yes, and in the other, the decision was no, and they both coexist. And the universe is forever branching out in infinity um, into the multiverse, which contains every possible decision. Well, here, here's an interesting thing. We've now realized that that's how governance in crypto works in terms of forks. You want big blocks? Great. You want small blocks? Great. You want the DAO, uh, the DAO bailed out? Yes. You, don't, you want the DAO not bailed out? Great. All of those universes exist. Every time someone decides, let's bail out the DAO, some people go, let's not bail out the DAO. And then the universe exists with two Ethereums, one in which the DAO was bailed out and one in which it wasn't. And you, the best part is not only can you choose which one to focus your attention on, um, but you can also choose to have your money in both. So nobody loses. I mean, this is the brilliant part. Uh, of course, if you make the wrong choice and you end up you know, you end up in the universe where the Nazis win the Second World War. And then you're like, oh, this one really sucks. But you still had that choice, right? So um, some of these forks end up losing. They fizzle. They don't get the attention they wanted. They don't succeed in their governance. But the, the great part of it is now we don't have to have one truth that everybody has to agree with that's led by one leader, and that's it. Instead, you can choose... Each user can choose which fork they follow, which then allows a broad diversity of opinion. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's fine by me. I like that governance model. Uh, it's a governance model where all of the hard decisions from now on lead to forks and they lead to this continuous bifurcation. I see. Andreas, we have about 11 minutes left of our conversation. Um, let me throw in a bunch of uh, quick uh, audience Let's questions. do rapid fire Q&A with the audience, yeah. So George Halachev from Bulgaria asks, do you see proof of stake as the leading consensus mechanism of the future? No, I don't. Um, I think proof of stake, uh, first of all, important historical fact, proof of stake was invented before proof of work. In fact, proof of work was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto in order to fix the problems of proof of stake. Now, proof of stake has evolved tremendously since then because consensus algorithms have received a lot of attention and investment uh, but proof-of-stake is qualitatively different than proof-of-work. And that means there is a place for one and there is a place for the other. There is a need for one for some applications. There is a need for the other. Proof-of-stake has certain efficiencies, especially in energy and scalability that proof-of-work doesn't have. But proof-of-work delivers a degree of immutability that cannot be achieved without it. Um, and so I think both will coexist. In fact, I think the strongest combination is to have one robust, immutable proof-of-work system and then have many proof-of-stake systems around it that use checkpointing to leverage the immutability of the proof-of-work system without having to do the energy-intensive mining. Um, so they coexist. In fact, one supports the other. Um, and, and, and that's great. We can experiment with all of them. And who knows? Maybe we'll invent more consensus algorithms. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes and speaking of the energy, actually, one of the most common popular criticism to uh, Bitcoin that has emerged uh, in, in popular media is the enormous energy consumption. And there's different kind of numbers. Some people say, well, it consumes more than Iceland. Other people say it consumes more than 2% of the total energy consumption of our planet, etc., etc., uh, so where do you stand on those numbers and what does that say, if anything, about whether uh, Bitcoin is good or bad and should live or die? Because that's kind of the implication that many people yes. who are pushing that argument are pointing towards. You know, it's yes. consuming such and such energy, therefore wastage, therefore bad for climate change, therefore kill Bitcoin. Is that yes. argument valid and sound or sound? Uh, it's it's very, very poor science from every possible level. First of all, uh, there's a fundamental extrapolation error, which is people say Bitcoin does, let's say, a thousand transactions now at this cost of energy. Therefore, if it did 10,000 transactions, it would need 10 times the energy. Completely wrong. There is no correlation between those variables. They're uncorrelated variables. That's a bit like saying my 14-year-old is already two meters tall. By the time he's 25, he's going to be six meters tall, and I won't be able to get him into the apartment. Uh, You know, know, the maternity doctor says to the lady, ma'am, I'm very concerned about the rate of your pregnancy. At six months, your belly is already very large. Two years into this pregnancy, your belly is going to be bigger than this room at current rates of growth. One. Two, we don't know how much energy Bitcoin actually consumes because you don't know the efficiency of the hardware that's being used to produce hashes. You know, on average, perhaps. Three, we don't know the sources of this energy. Four, from an environmental perspective, use of energy is not the same as production of energy. And where one is very harmful, the other one isn't. How we use energy 
It depends on whether it's harmful and what type of energy it is and how it's produced. Do we have enough energy on this planet? We do. Enormous amounts of solar, wind, renewables falling onto the surface of the planet, blowing across the surface of the planet 24 hours a day somewhere, um, most of which gets wasted today. And Bitcoin tends to be used in the areas of lowest cost energy. Lowest cost energy is usually energy that would otherwise not be used because there is no distribution or transmission system. So Bitcoin is actively subsidizing the development of renewable energy in places where there is no distribution network, specifically hydro, solar, and wind. Now, um, furthermore, at a very basic level, this is a totalitarian moralistic argument. And what it says is, in my personal opinion, this is a waste. And the reason it's a waste is because I don't see the value of an open borderless global cryptocurrency that serves every person on this planet. And because I don't see the value of that and I think it's a waste, I think we should kill Bitcoin. Well, two, new, two very good pieces of news for you. One, um, we don't let people make decisions for the rest of humanity. And when we do, it generally turns to be a bad idea. Uh, especially when they're not making informed decisions. Instead, we use another mechanism for making decisions on the allocation of resources on our planet, and that mechanism is called markets. Free markets make the best decisions on allocations of resources, and the Bitcoin mining market is a free market that is actually making very good decisions about how much security is needed and how much that security should cost and where that security should originate, creating a very dynamic, flexible, and competitive market. And finally, um, if you decide that you don't like it and you want to stop it, here's the good news. You can't. Should, must, shouldn't, mustn't, it doesn't matter. Bitcoin isn't about should or must or mustn't or shouldn't. It's about is. It is. It is happening. You can't stop it. Now, let's talk about harmful uses and production of energy. Let's talk about the externalization of coal, uh, creating carbon markets, creating pollution caps. Negative um, externalities. Dealing with economic externalities. And if you want to look at a really, really bad consumer and producer of pollution, uh, you know, the military is a far worse use of energy, in my opinion, than, uh, and it's the greatest polluter on the planet and one of the greatest energy users on the planet. And uh, producers of pollutants on the planet. Nobody talks about that. Nobody says we should ban Christmas lights because it's a complete waste of energy and they use more than Bitcoin. So um, I think a lot of these arguments are basically bad science combined with moralistic judgments and misunderstanding of the facts and a desire to apply to others your judgment and substitute that for free markets. Not a good way to do Andreas, what's the one sort of most annoying thing that you keep struggling or, 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 or having to clarify over and over again for the last five years that you want to set straight for once and for all? Um, you know, I think probably uh, the, the main thing is to understand that your unique perspective, uh, not you specifically, Nicola, but many of the people I've talked to, is this, um, so I have a Visa debit card. I have a bank account with JP Morgan Chase. I have an IRA or 401k investment or retirement account. 
I can access the S&P 500 stock market. I can invest in real estate. I can invest in bonds. I can even invest on the Japanese stock market. And I don't need Bitcoin. So why would anyone need Bitcoin? The reason why no one, why someone would need Bitcoin, would need open borderless cryptocurrency, is because not everybody has those capabilities. In fact, once you start looking and understanding the number of people who have access to all of the things I just said, which includes approximately 250 million Americans, another 200, 300 million Europeans, uh, a small sliver of the upper class in China, Russia, Japan, Korea. Would you say? 15, 15%. Percent. Okay. And that leaves about 85% of the world population dealing in single currency, limited access to banking, mostly cash based societies, uh, no access to investments, no access to liquid capital, no access to loans, no access to currencies that are different so you can protect yourself, no access to the ability to hedge risk and protect uh, the future of your children. And, you know, I go around and I tell Americans, you don't need Bitcoin. But when I have this conversation in South America, everybody's like, yeah, please tell me more. So that's the fundamental argument, which is just because you don't need it doesn't mean it is not needed. All it means is you are privileged. Good for you. Congratulations. Now, imagine a world where everyone had the financial security, power and expression of an American, of an affluent European, of a rich Japanese person. Could we do that for everyone, please? That's what Bitcoin's about. So that's one of the main arguments for me. Just because you don't need it doesn't mean it's not needed. Yes. The other fundamental thing that I like to remind people is Bitcoin and open blockchain cryptocurrencies are about control and possession of the private keys. These systems work because you decentralize control over the keys. Every user is responsible for maintaining their own keys, maintaining their own security, and that's hard to do. Uh, and it's why it's difficult to participate in this technology. But you have to take control. If you don't, and you use a third party to hold your money for you on behalf of you, then what you're doing is you're recreating the traditional banking system on a much weaker foundation. So I use a slogan for that, which is your keys, your coins, not your keys, not your coins. Um, so if you don't control the keys, they're not your coins. They're really kind of an IOU, a promise by whoever does have the keys to maybe give you your money back when you ask for it, if they still have it and it hasn't been stolen in the meantime. That's a fundamental distinction because a lot of people are like, oh, this exchange got hacked. I told you Bitcoin was not secure. Well, you don't understand the fundamental concept here, which is it's only secure if everybody controls their own keys. If you centralize it all under a single actor, all you're doing is rebuilding the existing financial system with a different set of people on top. That's not a good way to go about it. Andreas Antonopoulos. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure again. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I hope we'll repeat this in less than five years next time. I hope so too. And I'm going to try and hold you up to it because I want to talk to you for another many hours, but I know you have someone right after it and I want to respect your time because it's thank very you. valuable. So thank you again and all the very best. I'll be in touch.
If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 